this comes from Psalm 116, verses 12 to 19. We tried to sing the opening verses last week, uh, which we didn't do too successfully. My fault, not yours. Um, But this is the end of, of Psalm 116. What shall I render to my God for all his kindness shown? So let us sing this together this afternoon. Let's stand together as we sing. Ask God to meet with us. Tim, would you lead us in prayer, please?
Amen. You may be seated. We just sang of the psalmist resolves to render the Lord a suitable service for what God had done for him, apparently brought back from a near-death experience. And so the words, precious in the eyes of the Lord, is the death of his saints. Not surprising. I think it certainly does have application to our physical lives. God, as we read this morning in Revelation 19, is taking vengeance on those who murdered his saints. And so their lives are precious in his sight. I have always thought that the immediate context may be looking at our death to sin, our sanctification. And that is probably the greater of the two types of death. To die to sin is much more precious than just to die physically. Commentators always like to know who wrote these psalms. This one does not give any clues to us. That doesn't stop them from making speculations. And I don't see anything wrong with that. I don't know. I don't want to waste your time. But there are some interesting things that you can glean from thinking about it. The authorship and the date are uncertain. And Spurgeon, uncharacteristic for him, doesn't mention the authorship or the date. He usually will assign it to someone, Calvin, Henry, and others. They regard David as the author, and many do. But each one differs as far as the occasion. You know, could have been, in some eyes, Absalom's rebellion or when he was being pursued by Saul or some other event. Um, I like uh, Plumer, who is the one I'm getting most of these uh, tidbits from. He, he notes that there are marks in the text of Chaldee influence, and so that strongly uh, casts doubts on David's authorship. And I appreciate that because that's something I can't know. I don't know uh, the Bible uh, languages. And then Morrison says it's not unsuitable to the circumstances attending the miraculous recovery of Hezekiah. So that starts a whole new uh, line of thinking. But Plumer sums it up, I think, very helpfully and says, none of these uncertainties detract from the instructing and consoling power of this psalm. And it is that. It's a wonderful, uh, powerful psalm, full of consolation, full of instruction. I think uh, Clark gives my favorite view, uh, one that I I think is right on. <laughs> Not that that means a whole lot, but many think it relates wholly to the passion, death, and triumph of Christ. Most of the fathers were of this uh, opinion, he says. And then someone named Fry argues that very view, that this is Christ's passion and death and triumph from 2 Corinthians 4, verses 10 through 14. Uh, verse 13 in that passage, is there's a quotation uh, right from this psalm, I believed, and therefore I have spoken. Notice as we go through it all the declarations uh, that the psalmist makes. He says, literally, he says, I loved because Yahweh has heard me. And so likewise us, we love him because he first loved us. He is the uh, instigator. He is the author of our faith and of our love. Notice all the I wills. Verse 2, I will call on him as long as I live. Perhaps a form of a vow. Verse 9, I will walk before Yahweh in the land of the living. Verse 13, I will lift up the cup of salvation. And uh, reminds me that he said, uh, I think Plumer said it, some churches uh, use this psalm. They sing this uh, psalm at their communion service, probably with this verse uh, in mind, lifting up the cup of salvation. Verse 17, I will offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. 18, I will pay my vows to Yahweh in the presence of his people. A very uh, uh, robust uh, example of a, of a full heart wanting to serve God because of uh, his 
deliverance. Whenever we read the Psalms, we want to notice repetitions. Here we have a repetition of the phrase, call on the name of Yahweh. In verse 2, 4, uh, 13, and 17. And 13 and 17, um, notice that the lifting up of the cup of salvation is parallel to the offering of thanksgiving. So in our uh, communion celebration, we are offering uh, thanksgiving. And then he, uh, there's a repetition of the phrase, I will pay my vows to Yahweh in the presence of all his people. We will be getting a chance to do that next Sunday at the Thanksgiving uh, celebration. And I think uh, this psalm is a good uh, reminder of it's important to publicly uh, pay to Yahweh our vows in the presence of his people, our obligation uh, to give thanks to him. Just one note on translations, if you have King James or New King James, verse 11 says, in my haste, I said, that cross that out, it <laughs> should be uh, in my alarm, because it sounds like he's being hasty and, and, and sinning and imprudent uh, in his thoughts. But that is not the case at all, because it is indeed true that all men are liars, right? Psalm 53, <laughs> verse 3, the wicked go astray from the... From the womb, and taking this as I believe it is, uh, very messianic. Think how Messiah must have felt when all his disciples, who had just promised, all 12 of them, uh, with Peter, well, 11 at that point, uh, with Peter, that they would not forsake him. And then in the hour of trial, in the hour of his alarm, and the word is sudden uh, fear, sudden fleeing. In the hour of his alarm, they all forsook him and fled. So I chose the English Standard Version for that reason alone. <laughs> I love Yahweh because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is Yahweh and righteous. Our God is merciful. Yahweh preserves the simple. The simple literally are those who cannot take care of themselves. And we know, understand that from just uh, the physical side of it. We know there are people who cannot take care of themselves, but spiritually, uh, we are all simple. We cannot uh, take care of ourselves, and we need Yahweh to take care of us. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for Yahweh has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before Yahweh in the land of the living. I believed, even when I spoke, or therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to Yahweh for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of Yahweh. I will pay my vows to Yahweh in the presence of all his people, precious in the sight of Yahweh, is the death of his saints. O oh, Yahweh, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. And here's a homeborn slave, and yet he is free. His bonds have been loosed. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of Yahweh. I will pay my vows to Yahweh in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of Yahweh, in your midst. O Jerusalem, praise Yahweh. Now, before Ken comes and opens the Word of God, please take your Trinity hymn books and turn to number 20. Number 20, give to our God in mortal praise. As you're turning there, I just one thing I wanted to add, and, and that is that they've assured us that Tricia is not contagious. Just in case any of you 
ever have a chance to visit. Um, the lingering COVID is not contagious, so I just wanted to make that clear uh, that you might know that. So number 20 in your Trinity hymn book. For prayer, please. I fooled you, didn't I? All right. Lord, Heavenly Father, how grateful we are that uh, we are here this day. You have brought us together to worship you and to praise your holy name. May we never forget what a great and awesome God we have. And so, Lord, we would ask that you would bless your word as it goes forth this afternoon in power. And uh, may it bring glory and honor to your precious name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Question number one of the um, 1647 Westminster Shorter Catechism asked a question. What is the chief end of man? The answer... Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Today I would like to take up the second duty of this uh, question and to enjoy him forever. Much of this afternoon's devotion was taken from an essay written by 
And this is kind of a coincidence. Uh, I have been recently speaking uh, using Thomas Watson's little book, Heaven Taken by Storm. We're not doing that today. We're taking a break from that. But we are looking uh, at some material written by a pastor by the name of Sam Storms. So I, I, uh, but this caught my eye, not the name, but uh, the message. And so a lot of it comes from there and various other uh, places, primarily from Scripture. But uh, Sam Storms, he's a pastor of Bridgeway Church in Oklahoma City. He is also a member of, a council member of the Gospel Coalition. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but uh, D.A. Carson is one of the founders of uh, uh, that coalition, Gospel Coalition. So enjoying God. Uh, this, this really uh, struck me as something, and I, I think it probably is not done by many Christians, is enjoying God. Enjoying God. Well, what does it mean to enjoy? According to Webster's Dictionary, enjoy means to derive pleasure from, to relish, to rejoice. Biblically speaking, enjoying God is to know him, to admire his beauty, to take great delight in him with our emotions, to dedicate ourselves to him and to praise him for who he is. We spoke also, I think, recently on, on uh, the spiritual discipline of meditation. What better to meditate on than our great and awesome God? Meditating on all his attributes to savor, as it were, his love and goodness. Enjoying him is a command. It is not a burdensome command. It is also that for which God made us. He made us to enjoy him, to glorify him. What enables to, uh, Christians to live sacrificial lives, uh, continue to fight sin, and to remain steadfast in the face of persecution? What allows us to do those things? It is the profound delight we have for our great triune God. Few people struggle to understand what it means to fear God. We know what it means to obey God, to love and honor and worship God, but to speak of enjoying God strikes many almost as flippant, as perhaps even irreverent to enjoy God, enjoy Him. God's... But what does God's word have to say about this? If you would turn to today's primary text, Psalm 37 and verse 4. Psalm 37 and verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. David exhorts us that we delight ourselves in the Lord, and he will give us these, the desires of our heart. Another example would be Nehemiah 8.10. You don't have to turn there, but Nehemiah 8.10 says this, Then he said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of Yahweh is your refuge. Zechariah 2.10 Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares Yahweh. Another one, Luke 6, 22 through 23. 
Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and what? Leap for joy. Leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. Leap for joy. Remember David as he come dancing into town and his wife looking out the window was so embarrassed for him. He looked like a nut. But David, King David, leaping for joy, bringing the Ark of the Covenant. I'm reminded of 2 Samuel. Uh, well, that was found in Second uh, Samuel verse, or chapter 6, verse 16. David looked so common before the Lord. He didn't display the dignity that Saul's daughter was used to. In Saul's time, the ark had been neglected and true religion was uncared for. Michael didn't understand David's religious enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. Back to Psalm 37.4 for a moment. <clears throat> and he will give us the desires of our heart. The caveat is our desires must be desires that have our great God as their focus and the ever-increasing joyful satisfaction that is found in more of him. Is our joyful satisfaction ever increasing? Are we increasing in our joy, in our delight for God? Are we, do we find ourselves in a dry wilderness, as it were? Or are we like the church of Ephesus who left their first love? They were big on doctrine, but they no longer had the love for Jesus that they started out with. Not to enjoy or delight in God is a serious matter. John Piper, in his book, Desiring God, Meditations of a Christian Hedonist, page 22, writes, God is not worshipped where he is not treasured and enjoyed. Praise is not an alternative to joy, but the expression of joy. Not to enjoy God is to dishonor him, to say to him that something else satisfies you more. That's the opposite of worship. In fact, John Piper calls it a sacrilege. Pastor Storms comments, If our delight is holy in God, our desires will not be for anything that would diminish his centrality in our souls. We won't want anything that has the potential of turning our heart to trust in anyone but him. If our desires are for the stuff of this world, that would detract from our complete satisfaction in God. Then we aren't truly delighting ourselves in him. There is in every soul an insatiable hunger deep down for joy. And that is how God designed us. He designed us this way. It's part of what it means to be created in the image of God. Psalm 34, or 7, 4, again, delight yourself in the Lord. This is a command, not something to pray about or merely consider as if it were an option. Or a choice. This is a moral obligation. Delighting in God, enjoying God, is a duty. Second, delight or joy is also a feeling, an emotion, an affection, a subjective experience that is ultimately not under our control. It is not something we can produce by an act of will. 
God has to awaken and stir and evoke such affections in our souls. There are a variety of means to do this. How do we stir ourselves to joy and to delight in our Lord? Scripture is the first go-to. Creation, all of creation. The sacraments, obedience, prayer, worship, and what we considered last time, meditation. Our responsibility, as John Edwards put it, is to lay ourselves in the way of allurement. God's responsibility is to allure. So we are to place ourselves in the way of his allurement. I love what Charles Spurgeon wrote. He said, Happy is our condition when the glory of God fills both heart and tongue. And then he says, Oh, to swim in a sea of gratitude, to feel waves of praise breaking over one's joyful head, and then to dive into the ocean of adoration and lose oneself in the ever-blessed God. Spurgeon had a way with words. So why do the biblical authors make delight or joy in God so central to our relationship with him? Isn't it enough to obey God or to fear God or simply to believe in God? Isn't that enough? First, joy in God matters profoundly. Pastor Storms writes, quote, Joy clearly and thoroughly reveals the worth, value, and splendor of whatever it is that evokes it. In other words, the enjoyment or delight is the single most effective means for glorifying and magnifying God. He goes on to say, Deep, durable delight in God is how he is most glorified and honored in you. God is most glorified in us when we are most pleased. We are most satisfied, fascinated, enthralled with the splendor of his beauty. That can be seen in the face of Jesus Christ. What a beautiful God he is. Again, John Piper has said, quote, Joy is the clearest witness to the worth of what we enjoy. It is the deepest reverberation in the heart of man of the value of God's glory, end quote. So how is God most glorified in us? Again, quoting Pastor Storm, God is most glorified in us when our knowledge and experience of him ignite a forest fire of joy that consumes all competing pleasures, and he alone becomes the treasure that we prize. To know him is how we begin to love him, to study his attributes, his character, what he thinks, what he tells us is true and what he tells us is false. We begin to love him more and more. Again, Jonathan Edwards says, God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but it's being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. God made the world that he might communicate and the creature receive his glory, both with the mind and the heart. He that testifies his having an idea of God's glory doesn't glorify God so much as he that testifies also of his approbation, that is, his heartfelt commendation or praise of it and his delight in it. Passionate and joyful admiration of God is our aim. And you know, it's not just an intellectual apprehension. If God is to be supremely glorified in us, it is essential that we be supremely glad in him and in what he has done for us in Jesus you want to read a, a good book, and I'm sure you're all involved with many, many books, but Knowing God by J.I. Packer. What a great book that is, Knowing God. 
And um, Janet and I went through that together, and, and the men, we went through it together. And uh, it's just amazing, amazing how uh, Mr. Packer, Pastor Packer, draws out, out uh, <clears throat> so much information on, on uh, God and questions to question yourself with that, uh, you know, you just, the more you learn of him, the more you, you're just amazed. What, I mean, what a great and awesome God that we have. We must relish in the divine beauty of Christ so that he becomes our all-consuming passion and, and sin simply just turns sour in our souls. You know, I come to mind, you remember Joseph and uh, when he was tempted. And he said, how could I do this? How could I do this to my God? You could see, you could hear the love in Joseph's voice. And how could he do that to my God? True believers are eternally destined for joy unspeakable. Consider First uh, Peter 1, verse 8. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Joy is the whole soul resting in our triune God and rejoicing so that that so beautiful and glorious a being is ours. He's ours. And we are his. We are talking about the ineffable and inexpressible, unending pleasure of blissful union with and the joyful celebration of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is a joy of such transcendent quality that no persecution or pain, no deprivation can diminish nor wealth or success or prosperity can enhance is this awesome God. Philippians 3, verses 7 through 8. Familiar words of Paul. But whatever was gained to me, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things as loss compared to the surpassing excellence of what? Knowing Christ. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. You see, that's how much Paul loved Christ. He was willing to go through so much. And it's all listed out for you there in Corinthians. And um, all that, I remember Jesus went on the Damascus Road and, and he said, I, I will show him what he must suffer. And he did. But he, he was steadfast and he finished the race. Our joy is not found, <clears throat> or excuse me, uh, God created us to glorify himself by enriching us with a joy that flows from a saving encountered, encounter with the splendor of his son, beholding God's eternal excellence. Our joy is not found in our own accomplishments, not in the enjoyment of our sensual appetites, not in the development of a healthy self-esteem. That's not where our joy is found. Or in the acquisition of a, a big home with a three-car garage, and you may have that, and that's okay. But God is our fountain of all happiness and bids us come and drink without cost. Pastor Storms again, <clears throat> quote, Enjoying God matters profoundly. 
Because apart from our souls relishing the breathtaking beauty of Christ and resting in the all-sufficiency of his grace and goodness, we don't stand a chance against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Hebrews 11.24 By faith, when Moses, when he was grown, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he chose to suffer oppression with God's people rather than to experience the fleeting enjoyment of sin. He valued disgrace for Christ above the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to his reward. This is the battle that we face each day, and, and we awaken to a world every morning. We awaken to a world at war for the allegiance of our minds and the affections of our souls. And therefore, we must labor and pray and strive passionately and sacrificially for joy in Christ. We were talking, I was talking with someone this morning, and, and it's amazing that all the choices that we have to purchase things. If you go to the store and, and you look for a mustard, you'll find 12 different kinds of mustards. Uh, and you'll find um, so many different kinds of medications now. You watch television anymore, and there's all, every day, there's something I can't pronounce I've never seen before. And, and uh, they're telling us that we need this stuff. But here's, the, uh, here's all the uh, side effects. And most of them include death. <laughs> so they got their self covered. Uh, read this morning where you can't uh, go to, the, go to a sh- uh, store, can't go to the mall, and make a simple choice of buying some blue jeans with holes in them. Because you have all these different companies with blue jeans with holes in them. They all give you these different choices. And it just causes us to have stress and more stress. It's so hard. used to be it was a Ford, a Chevrolet, and a Buick, a Dodge, Mercury, Studebaker. It was easy. So the world is telling us that we, we need all this stuff. Um... And uh, we don't. So how are we to fulfill this command to enjoy, enjoy him forever? Pastor Storms, again, writes, First is an intellectual fascination or enthrallment with God. We must make use of the mind to set ourselves to know God. And we do that with our minds. And, of course, by the grace of God. And the Holy Spirit. Our understanding of Him must expand and intensify. We must know Him, we must study Him. Go through the Gospels again. I know we all like Romans and we like I like those doctrinal books, but go through the Gospels. And and you'll learn so much about the character and the attributes of Christ. We explore his ways and investigate his will. We must become students of the personality and character of God. Think about it. One cannot meanfully rejoice in a person of whom we know nothing. If you don't know much about God and you're not increasing your knowledge of him, how can you rejoice in him in a full way? Our knowledge of Christ is the foundation of our faith in him. Enjoyment that is not deeply rooted in what Christ has accomplished is little more than infatuation. When trials come, such fleeting feelings will collapse and they will be of little value in sustaining your soul. The joy or delight that David has in mind energizes and empowers the human heart to withstand any and all trials. So there's intellectual fascination, and second, there's an aesthetic adoration, an aesthetic adoration. 
We are created in the image of God and we are instinctively drawn to beauty. We're all drawn to beauty. We recognize and rejoice in beauty. Well, God is the ultimate beauty. To delight in him is to behold his beauty in all its vast array. The symmetry of his attributes, the intricacies of his handiwork, the majesty of his mercy, the depths of his greatness, the limitless extent of all his goodness. You look out at the universe, and it, it just, it's, it's, I, you can't think of a word to describe the vast universe. And yet God is so much bigger than that. So we need to stir ourselves up to rejoice in, in, in God. Psalm 27, 4 says, One thing I have asked from the Lord, David speaking, that I shall seek, and that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to what? Behold the beauty of the Lord, and to meditate in his temple. The beauty of God is more than mercy, or excuse me, than merely, I can't read my writing sometimes. The beauty of God is more than merely enjoyable, it is profoundly transforming. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror of the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. It is deep delight and joy in the all-satisfying beauty of Christ that encourages the timid and the fearful to engage and confront the Christless culture in which we live with the good news of the gospel, of the cross of Christ, and the life and forgiveness and hope that can only be found through faith in Jesus. It is deep delight and joy in the all-satisfying beauty of Christ that will sustain a church through adversity and bind the hearts of its people together in unity and love and mutual affection. affection. So what I would encourage you, and I have to encourage myself, to stir yourself up. To love the Lord in a more full and complete way. Because it's worth, he is worth it. To come joyfully to church. It's okay. To smile and to greet one another. To hug one another. To, to enjoy our common relationship in our great God. And sometimes I think this gets left out. I think sometimes that we, if we're not too careful, we... We get caught up a little bit in, in gaining uh, knowledge for knowledge's sake. And uh, we, we don't want to lose our first love. You know, the Bible, from the Old Testament to Revelation, to the maps, is all Christ. It's all about Christ. So let's, let's rejoice in him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. What, what a precious, precious book. And may we meditate on it day and night. May, may we ponder its truths as we work, as we play, as we enjoy our family and, and relationships. May we ever be joyful. May we never get to a place where Someone looks at us and says, if that's Christianity, I don't want any part of that. So, Father, forgive us of that sin and help us as we delight in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
I pray you see the connection between what we considered this morning and what we just heard. Where does real contentment come from? In knowing God and rejoicing in Him. And I trust that's something that we experience and we're growing in um, in our relationship to Him. And, uh, so take your Trinity hymn books and turn to 83, 83 in your Trinity hymn book. We praise Thee, O God, our Redeemer, Creator. In grateful devotion, our tribute we bring. Number 83. Let's stand as we sing. 